Hello and welcome to the Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Mary Jane Laurie and this is our third Women in Agriculture podcast. Today I've travelled to Lanark Mart to speak to Primrose Beaton, Head of Cattle Sales at Laurie and Sannington. Hello Primrose. Good morning. Can you start by introducing yourself a little bit for us? Um, my name is Primrose Beaton, I'm Head of Cattle here at Lanark. I started two and a half years ago in March... Seventeen, March 17, March 17. Yeah. Um, and before that, from July 86, I worked for United Auctions. Where were you based? Before? I was based in Stirling. Stirling. 32, okay. almost one years before I left. So a big move to come here. A huge move. Yeah. But you have to take your chance when you get it. And I wasn't getting on too many men in front of me, too many people the same age. And this was a chance of a lifetime to step up and sell the store cattle. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Are you from a farming family originally? I'm a dairy farmer's daughter from Lanarkshire, so the okay. Lanarkshire girl came home at the yeah. end of her days. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised on Crumlet Farm at Airdrie, okay. where my identical twin now runs a herd of pedigree British Friesian cows. Okay. So there was four of us, one boy and three girls. Mm-hmm. Um, we were a wee late surprise, identical <laughs> twin and girls surprise. No, so I was always steeped in agriculture and very heavily involved in the young farmers movement as well. Okay. And we um, I was the club treasurer, mm-hmm. no, club secretary, district treasurer, uh, regional ladies chairman, regional west chairman, national competitions chairman twice, national ladies chairman very heavily involved in young farmers it's a great movement yeah and do you think that's what helped you get ahead in, in, in work do you think having the, the experience in the young farmer no I think the speech making and the drama and the talent spot are very good for helping you in public speaking and mm-hmm. just having confidence but but no no I think to get on in this the job that I'm in I think it's a sound knowledge of stock and a sound knowledge of people you need yeah, yeah. and I think some of these skills are inherent in you rather than learning them yes so I think it's fair to say that your job as a livestock auctioneer isn't a traditional role for a woman to take. So how did you get into auctioneering? Was it always something that you wanted to do? No, I wanted to go home and milk cows. Okay. But that summer I was just getting ready to leave school and starting to slide nicely into the milkings. There was a job came up in the Scottish Farmer for a group apprenticeship scheme for United okay. Auctions. And I applied. <clears throat> and back in the mid-80s, obviously, it was very unusual so when I applied for it when I had my interview you know they were quite clear when they took me on because they interviewed hundreds and right. out of the hundreds there was four of us taken on and uh, they were quite clear when I arrived in Stirling the first Monday that you know you're a girl we had to take you on for these equal rights oh. people nowadays I bet that went down like a lead balloon oh it didn't bother me it was said to yeah. me <laughs> yeah but they were I remember clearly when I started company director secretary whatever and uh, I remember them clearly saying to me you know you're a girl, you'll never be an auctioneer. Yeah. And I just remember sticking my wee chin out because I was brought up by a man at Airdrie who had always taught us you can be anything you want to be mm-hmm. if you put your mind to it. Yeah. And I remember clearly looking at him, the wee chin coming right out and just saying to him, my daddy says I can be anything I want <laughs> to be if I put my mind to it. Did that spur you on to, to be more determined to, to do a good job or do you think, was it always just a sort of short-term job for you and you'd always dreamed of going back to the family farm? <laughs> I get started in the auction market. I loved the auction market. Yeah. I always was sick on a Thursday so I could take the calves through to the market to sell them <laughs> and get a day at the market. I was always I always was in love with the auction system. Yeah. Um so no, when I got the chance to go and work there I loved it. I, yeah. I, I you know, I hadn't even thought about being an auctioneer until the boss told me I wouldn't be an auctioneer. Right. And that was it. It was just yeah. like I think you'll find that's <laughs> in my back teeth now and I'll yes. just keep it there. Yeah. Um and also I'm not a girl for being inside much, I'm an outside girl. 
And so at, at home you said you had three siblings, so are they all involved in farming? No, no, no. My older sister was a head teacher in Stirling before she retired um, early, I hasten to add. <laughs> my brother is a mental health officer, and then it's my identical twin that's the farmer. Okay, so there wasn't competition at home particularly for taking on the farm. Oh no, all the girls wanted to farm. All the girls oh, wanted oh, to farm. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, and no, your no. brother didn't? No. Oh, my dad wasn't like that. He was very very equal in everything that he did and the girls were treated exactly the same as the boys. So there was never any inheritance issues or anything for you growing up? It was always, you could take on the farm if you wanted, but equally you could go and do anything. Oh yeah, he would encourage you to go and do something else. He was brought home to the farm as the oldest son. He'd been destined for better things. He was very clever at school and I always remember at his funeral, his best friend at school was the manager of IBM in Paris and came to the funeral and told us that he wasn't the brilliant one, it was my father. But my father was brought home before his final exams. A man who had got 99% for his Latin in his last school exam. And then he was told he had to come home now. There was no money, but he had to come home to work. And when um, when they married and moved into the farmhouse, my mum found the few wages he got wrapped in a ribbon because he'd been told there'd be no money, so he never took any of the money his father gave him. He made his own, he put on poultry and made his own money as long as milking the cows at home. That's quite touching, isn't it? That well, that was just the man my father was, yeah. and, and he was the man that also brought his girls up to believe in themselves and also to never look at ourselves as being any different from, you know. Yeah. I hate people saying, what's it like to be a female auctioneer? I don't know. Yeah. I only know what it's like to be an auctioneer. Yes. I hate it when people ask you that. Yeah. What's it like to be a woman doing? I don't know. <laughs> I've only ever been me, and yes. I only ever know what it feels like to do what I do. Yeah. Which is all you can, that's mm-hmm. the only experience you've got, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about your early career after you got that first job? How was it? What, well, what I stayed there for role? 31 years and I started off the way that we all started back then. Mm-hmm. I answered the phones, I changed the towels in the toilets, I did the filing, I weighed the fat cattle, I weighed the, the culled cows mm-hmm. and just progressed up through the ranks slowly but surely. Um, can you remember your first time in the ring selling? Oh, it, the first time I sold wasn't in the ring, it right. was... Out at a small tool sale at an implement sale. Okay. And I remember go? clearly the first thing I sold was a ladder. Right. <laughs> the, there was a pile of rubbish to start with, but old, old David Nellis for this time must have warmed me. So, because he came out too that day, yeah. and him and his dad, him and my dad were the two men that bid for the ladder. <laughs> How much did it go for? Can you I think it was about £45. Pounds. Oh, it was quite a good, quite mm. good price for uh-huh. it. Uh, but it was a big, big extending ladder, but dad bought it because right. dad was determined to be there in support. Yeah, so it was the smallest tools I started selling, mm-hmm. and I sold them for quite a wee while. Um, and then the chap who was selling the calves left, so I got the chance to sell the calves. Mm-hmm. And then at one stage, I went through a wee blip where I was selling calves, motherless lambs, pigs, because I'd kept on giving up, and I kept on getting thrown all these wee because they're all wee things, and I used to do them all yeah. on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And then I always clerked the fact the store cattle sale on a Wednesday. <laughs> all my time in strumming, I did the auctioneer's book, I clerked it, never got to sell the stores, but was heavily involved in the stores, that was what I canvassed. Because yeah. to begin with, I started off selling the calves, and by that time, I was termed a trainee auctioneer. But all the boys who'd started before me all got given cars almost straight away. And, you know, I had to literally take my own car out for the first wee while. And I remember a terrible row one night in the office, about half past nine at night. I'm getting instructions off my line manager of where I have to go the next day, what I have to do. And I'm like, yeah, I've had enough of this. I just about wrecked my car. Everybody else has got a company car. I'm not going. Well, you'll sit in the office and do nothing. I said, well, I will. But I'll sit in the office and do nothing in the same pace I'm on just now. And I phoned the boss that night there. And then when we were still sitting, I said, oh, she's needing a car. You better get her a car. So I got a wee diesel Fiesta. She was second hand. She came up out of Carlisle. 
and I loved her. And her nickname was the Dead Pig Motor. <laughs> because I get nicked with the pig ones and I uh, <laughs> thought it would be clever that I would just get it killed and cut up for home uh-huh. yeah I got it cut up in Dumblane and picked it up one Monday morning and then went round my farms for the day with it tied up in a bag in the boot oh, and it no. must have leaked oh. so about a, mm, three or four days later the smell got up smell, and yeah. everybody that got in the car I was like what is that smell oh it's dead pig and so she became the dead pig motor <laughs> That's quite a ring to it. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Yeah, I also blew the cylinder head gasket off her once going through a flood because I thought she was invincible and she wasn't. <laughs> but there you are. Happy memories. <laughs> Happy memories. So once you'd moved up a bit, started selling livestock, did you start then having ambitions for, for greater things or were you quite happy in that role for a while? Oh, I just scuttled through all my days. Um, I did do my exams. I'd started them before I started selling livestock. But again, the three boys who started with me at the time in 86, July 86, they all went forward to exams in January 87. They were all put on forward to exams. What exams do you have to do? Is Institute of Auctioneers. It's okay. slightly different now. They all now go down south right. um, and do their exams down at the estate management college down in, oh, it's Middle England somewhere. But back in my day, we did them all at the Institute offices in Edinburgh. And it was three times you went morning or afternoon to your tutorials. But they all went forward in the January 80... I started 86. So January 87, the three boys I started with went forward to the exams. And I was by that time. I did six months in Stirling and then moved up to Oban for six months. And the boss in Oban was a great man, Tom Wallace, with Mm -hmm. three girls of his own. Mm -hmm. And it was him that said to me, did you not want to do the exams? And I'm like, what exams? He says, well, the three boys you started with are all the way doing exams. He says, well, nobody said a word to me in the company about it. So it was Tom Wallace that signed all my paperwork and had to wait another year before I could start my exams. But that group apprenticeship scheme started in July 86 and ran till January 88. And it was in January 88 I went into Stirling full time because of the four of us, only two of us stayed. And I went into Stirling, which caused consternation with the trainee above me who hated me because he wanted another boy so that he could get out of all the trainee jobs. And I'm like, well, I'll do them. I don't mind. Yeah. And did you win him over? Oh, yeah, no, we were probably up until I left the company now. Have you always, were you always based at Stirling or did you get to travel around some of the different... Oh, no, in my time I've done quite a bit, you know, without lying sales. And because I was in this this group apprenticeship scheme, I did six months in Stirling, six months in Oban, six months in Perth. So, you know, I used to do the sales in Cooper and Dunmally and all over. In fact, Dunmally was a fairly regular stint for me. Most of my, through my middle years, I would spend almost every Saturday through the back end in Dunmally clerking sheep sales because I knew everybody in the sales staff changed a time or two. But throughout, I was the one constant. I knew everyone, so I used to always be there. And I loved outline sales and I used to go to Isla to the sales in Isla as well, but I wasn't a great sailor. But I went just the same. (laughs) I always remember being in Isla once at a sale and I was clerking and Donald Morrison was selling and uh, this bullock jumped in the box beside us and of course it's, I'm not very agile but it's amazing how agile you are when there's a bullock in the box so I'm up onto the top rail my way along this wee tiny top rail like a rocket and just into the ladies' loose because I was using a trip to the loo anyway and uh, poor Donald had the mic on and he couldn't understand why he couldn't get couldn't up get out he couldn't get out and of course I Poor Donald. He got out in the end and the bullet got out as well. But I remember another time jumping up on the top of the ring in Tarbert because a young cow came at me and I'm sitting on top of this ring and it's amazing how you can get up in it but the ring went up and then slightly out. And of course I'm sitting out in the top rail and couldn't think how to get back in and they're all screaming, get down, get down! And I'm like, I I don't know how to! (laughs) I'm sure it gets quite lively sometimes. (laughs) Well I try and avoid in the ring with old cows if I can because you know, my father reminded me the first time I went to Dolmalley to a calf sale just remember there's no such thing as a live hero. 
Well, true. So, <laughs> yes. I have learned if it's them or me, it's always yes. going to be me I say yeah. first. Yeah. So what challenges have you faced in your working life? Oh, the challenge to be taken seriously, the challenge that, you know, is she capable? People don't always estimate, does it get... It's different, it's different now. Mm, you know, right. back when I was, first of all, in amongst it, you know, there wasn't the same amount of girls... Nowadays, girls just take part, it's just mm -hmm. the given. But back then, it was different, and you didn't just take part, and people didn't always presume, you know, there were plenty of old farmers would take me into the shed and say, nah, that's my best bullock, and you'd be standing going, hmm, right... Do I tell you it's not because you doubt me and are testing me, or do you really think it is your best bullock and I don't? So, you know, do, yeah. do, I, do I step over the mark here or don't I? And nine times out of ten, being me, I did just say, well, it may be your favourite bullock, but I would say just about any other one in the shed would be mine. <laughs> <laughs> but they were just testing you. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't a nice position to be in, is it? Oh, no, it didn't bother me. I'm a people know. person. Yeah. I like them whether they talk or not. In fact, the ones that don't talk are great, because then I can do all the more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think, you say think, you think things are changing or have changed? Oh, they so, definitely yeah. have. Yeah, so is there more female auctioneers around now? No. No? No. Um, Helen up in Aberdeen. Uh, there's, what is the nice girl down in the north of England? There's a nice girl, uh, quite a hard to get a Libby living in the north of England but no up here you know we have a couple of girls that are keen and are training mm -hmm. but I don't think I think UA's put a couple of girls through the, their exams but in the office they're not getting out and about or getting right. to but we have a couple of girls here who are doing their exams at the moment since I started who are also out and about a couple of days a week while still fulfilling a role in the office which that's is how yeah. I started yes. I used to go out for a day or two and have to do the office and, and you know nowadays all the young ones seem to think that and I sound old which is terrible but all the young ones seem to think they know it all before they even have two steps in the door you know yeah. like there's nothing wrong with doing a bit of time in the office and learning all the basics because it makes you a better auctioneer when you're yeah. selling if you know what these people are doing then you know to appreciate what they have to do and to show them respect and to give them their time yeah which, you know, an auctioneer that has never clerked a sale doesn't always, you know... There used to be horror stories in my youth. There was an old auction, old auctioneer's clerk called Jimmy Garland from Cooper. He's an ex-army man and he's always wore those big turned-up hogs of five shoes and you could see yourself in them. They were shined that hard <laughs> and he was just a gruff old bism. And he used to just break the pencil. What are you going to do now? No pencil, can't clerk your sale. Because the auctioneer would just sail on and wouldn't, you know, yeah, he hadn't got the last buyers. And, and that was when they were writing it. Now in the computer, there's even less room for error. Yes. If you've clerked that sale, then you know and you always make sure and respect your clerk and make sure the clerk's getting caught up and yeah, is everything okay. Time. And just pull on my sleeve. If you're struggling at all, stop me. So what tips would you give someone who wants to get into auctioneering then? Keep on writing letters. That's what I did. I wrote to all the auction markets when I was young and they all wrote back and said, no, thank you, because I was a girl. And then this thing came up and I applied for it. But I would say if you're keen, keep, keep right to the auction markets. You know, the girls are all in about the markets more now anyway. Yeah. You know, and they're in amongst young farmers and they're doing the stock judging and things. And, and that is the basic core value things that you need to be an auctioneer. You need to know stock <laughs> and you need to be good with people. Yeah. You know, you need to be able to speak to people, read people, you need to be able to empathise with people and you need to know their stock. So have you got a family at home? I do. I was a very late starter. God help me. <laughs> I am 51 and I have a boy of six and a boy of eight. Yep. 
and we just bought the wee farm up the road from home this summer. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I know, it's quite a big step. People yeah. in agriculture understand that, people out with agriculture and we don't. But myself and my husband are both, he works for the opposition. Awkward. Right. <laughs> he works for UA still, where we met, and uh, I okay. work for Lanark. Uh-huh. But the neighbours farm up the Bray. I was in this January to buy his cattle. Joe, you know, got out the car, what's for sale? And uh, he said, nothing, everything. And of course, without even thinking, I went, you're on, I'll have it. <laughs> and uh, we were joking, but then he came back to me at the end of March and said, you know, we are tired. And if you are serious about you and the boys, so then I had to go home and say to my husband, oh, I think we're buying a farm. <laughs> and has that always been an ambition on the back of your head that you would like to own your own place, do you think? Oh, yes, I'm farming stock through and through. I love yeah. stock, you know. Mm-hmm. Folk will laugh at you because you can't... A, a person who loves stock can't walk by them. You know, I can't walk by a lovely cow. He just takes a minute to admire her. And if she's a good-natured cow, it just takes a second to have a wee hand on. <laughs> Let them know that you appreciate them. So I would have always been keen. But now I have two boys, it's even more so. Yeah. Because every generation should deserve the chance if it's in them. Some people will come into it and will learn... But those people that normally will be bred in them somewhere back because it's in you that the love of the land, the love of stock in particular, if you if you know stock, that's bred into you. You never teach them that. That's in them. Mm-hmm. You can't teach them that. You know, I would have stood in the buyer at five years, six years of age and fought with my dad about what the best cab was in the buyer <laughs> and would never back down. And, but that's bred into you. Are your boys doing that to you now, then? Yeah, yeah. well, not to the same extent as I maybe was, but then I would be on the farm, you know, from right through, yeah. whereas we were just in the farm now. Although we stayed next to my sister's farm and they would go up and help when they could. Yeah. But nowadays, yeah, no, I mean, this morning, it's just mornings are very busy in our house so this morning we were the three of us and the two boys and I were out this morning with the big milk trolley feeding our calves that are on milk because we've got calves on milk now because you know when you buy a farm you don't have a lot of cash so you buy calves too because it's an easier way in so we're out feeding our calves this morning and then trying to get guddled into school uniforms and up to school and I'm coming here and it's never easy but we have to give them the chance so do you think they're they're keen to be oh the wee one definitely the big one yes maybe Mm -hmm. he's He's a, he's a slightly softer boy. The wee one's hard as nails like his mother. Um, it's quite, they're, they're quite a conundrum. The big one looks like me, but is his father over the back. Right. And the wee one looks like his dad, but is his mother over the back. Right. The first sign of trouble, he comes out the traps fighting. <laughs> so uh, maybe both, but certainly, definitely the wee one. But they must be given the chance. And is your husband from a farming family as well? So he's Yes, but he would never have been keen to have had a farm. No, so his, all you. His yeah. folks... Um, his father would be a manager of a big farm up hillside up in Kilmacombe okay. and he would be born and bred in a farm but he was a city boy he lived in Edinburgh for 30 years till, he, till I got a hold of him <laughs> dragged him out to live very sad all these ladies on the phone when he's changing his address oh you know oh dear sir from, oh dear, from Christophan to Airdrie oh dear sir <laughs> but we both wanted it for our boys because yeah. A growing up in a farm is a lovely way of life for children mm-hmm. and it teaches them so many more things like you know there's a huge move in ed- education just now towards outside learning being so important yeah oh, really you know my parents and grandparents could have told you that yeah so it is important that the boys get out and they do get out you know they're super they go out and help and they yeah. you know the men who've got sheep on will get sheep on and the, the men who have their sheep on for the winter they let them go and help them load them and draw them and, and we have a child mind and they're on a farm and they help with them and, and these are all really important things for them to learn yeah 
So if you, you've not got many livestock of your own yet, then no, no, we, we're wintering sheep this winter, okay. and but we will have some ewes. It's just at the time of season when we will get some. Yeah, just now the ewe sales are on. Yeah, um, the right place to yeah, you like <laughs> in the right industry anyway. So your plan is to get your own sheep and yes, yes, we'll get some ewes. Yeah, we'll get some ewes because yeah. the boys are super keen about some sheep. Yeah, that's not their mother's bit in them. I hasten to add, <laughs> but the boys are super keen, and and also to to take on a farm in the home district. You know, when another. So many of these smaller farms get gobbled up and they get split up. Yeah. To, to, you know, that was why the neighbour gave us the opportunity of a lifetime to buy her privately. And, and we took that opportunity to, to take that farm that the man has improved the last 30 years and to hopefully improve it again yeah. and make it better than he left it, which is what every generation does. So what size is the farm? Uh, we, we own about 123 acres and we rent about another 25 that goes with it. So it's just yeah. shy of 150 acres. Yeah. Not, 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 not small then <laughs> for getting started you know to go straight in well it, it's a huge step you know I don't know how young people well young people struggle to start nowadays yeah, but we're, yeah. you know we're both in good wages and we it's been very difficult the first two or three years are very difficult because it all goes out and nothing comes yes, in yes yeah but it is still the opportunity of a lifetime for my boys and I want yeah, my boys yeah. to have what I had to be able to come home at night and go out the back and feed the calves and have sheep to work at because I never went in at night and sat down and watched the TV because that was not allowed yeah. but it just stood me in good stead you know, hard work will not kill you yeah. and fresh air is very good for them and I don't want them sitting on their big bottom getting bigger <laughs> so they're far better out in amongst it yeah. and it's in them, it is in them you yeah. know, so and it's really nice that, you know We've managed to buy the farm next to home. We have the backup of my sister. So they're just a couple of miles down the road? Or they're just a li- mile. Is it literally a mile? Oh, There's really? only a wee farm in between us and we like okay. to roast him, but he is now. <laughs> Poor <laughs> George. <laughs> Poor George, the man in the middle. And Roberta and I like to roast him. He was in here one day in the spring selling cattle with me and he's going to me, no, you're jumping the dike, you're jumping the dike, you're going up the side of, or the other side of me, you're jumping the dike. And I went, yes, George, and that'll make you the ham in the Dunbar girl's sandwich. And he's like, well, it's not so funny when you say it like that. <laughs> How do you feel about the recent negative press about farming and climate change? I think if we were causing all the climate change, why come it hasn't happened before? All these big... We, we stay in the airplane path for Glasgow Airport mm. and that big Emirates plane flies over me every afternoon when I'm there at the weekends. She is huge. And the trail of smoke out behind her is mammoth. Mm. My 20 calves in the shed are not causing any problem. The All the tractor work we do in the west of Scotland doesn't cause any big problems, even the combines and things in the east. Yeah. But the, there's a movement out there who would like to ram it down your throat. Well, I don't ram down the throat that I am a meat eater. I love red meat and I am not embarrassed to say it. Yeah. What I was always taught was that the stock must be well cared for and looked after and have a beautiful life while it is there. Mm-hmm. But if we aren't going to eat the stock, we're not going to have the stock. The cows will be shot, there'll be no calves, there'll be no anything. And the countryside will turn to rashes, marsh and horrible big hedges and the public will not be able to look onto the beautiful Scottish scenery because it will not be as they see it today. No. Even the hills already where the sheep have gone are going backwards and there's landslides and things because you need the stock. These movements are very good. These minorities are very good at putting a really, really emotive campaign out. But nobody's putting an emotive campaign out from our side. No, that's a difficult thing. It's social media, it acts so quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. To, so is there anything that you think farmers can do then to sort of fight Yeah, I've consistently said, and everybody poo-poos me, but I believe that the skills let every corn manufacturer, vegan group in, why aren't the farmers' wives going into the schools? There is a mass shortage of home economics teachers. 
Um, my family were all home economics teachers. My auntie, okay. my big sister, they were all home economics teachers. Okay. And they haven't been training home economics teachers. I've started retraining some now. But, you know, even from the point of view of my boys being at school, there's a huge shortage of home economics teachers so they don't get taught to cook anymore. No. And if they don't know how to cook, they won't use our basic produce. So let's use the best asset we have, the farmer's wife, who all know how to cook. Even the farmers, let them go in. But let them go in and help these kids learn how to cook. Because while they're in the school teaching them how to cook, they're also teaching the kids about our life. Yeah. Because somewhere back in the 80s, 90s maybe, all this blew up about, you know, oh, they've got a tummy bug and it came from the farmer and we're going to sue you for millions. So it stopped. But when I was a wee girl, we had school trips to our farm every summer. And when I say we had school trips, we had schools come out from Glasgow and right over the whole of North Lanarkshire. And I'm talking two a day through mm, the greater half of May and most of June. Wow. Because my dad would never say no. Yeah. So that it became that that was the given route that they all came to Crumlet. They came in a bus and they got a walk. I mean, in our cows at the time, there was that many school trips every summer. The our cows never got up in the field. These kids would be a class of 20-odd primary kids would march down into the field and the cows would all lie there too in their cuts. Well, they all marched around them with my dad. And then they all marched back up into the steading and he put on the parlour and he let them feel the units soak in their finger and then he let them see where the milk was. And back then we were producer retailers, so we were selling our milk so they would see the pasteuriser working and the milk milk getting bottled and then they all would get huckled into the turkey shed before the turkeys come in to sit in a bale of straw and play with the kittens and get a glass of milk and a biscuit yeah. I mean thousands of kids would come through our farm in that sort of space of 10 years when they all came to visit a busload at a time twice a day yeah. for most of June and half of May the pictures my dad got, all these pictures from kids, and nine times out of ten, you know, the 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 farmer was that was sort of medium size, and the cow was tiny, and the cat was massive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but these kids all sent pictures saying, "Thank you, Mister Dunbar, for letting us meet your cows and see you and see where it all comes from." And then there was this huge turn towards, "Oh, you can't have them on." And Rhett are doing a good, great work. Yes, yeah, but before Rhett, it was common. There were plenty of men like my father who had school visits right. from the local school. It started when we started school. The teacher had went to school with my father and said, "Jim, you can't have these girls coming in every day talking about feeding calves and lambs and things and not have the kids out to see it." So my dad said, <laughs> "Fine, Margaret, bring them out." Yeah. And then, of course. The next year, two or three other teachers in the school wanted to take the class out, and then they tell their pals, and then another school, and then another school, yeah. and suddenly it just by word of mouth grows. And and he never said no. He loved kids, so he never said no. He took them out, and he gave them all the same chat, and he walked them through the cows, and the cows lay there. I think kids have lost that connection now because I, I work with Rhett as a volunteer speaker, and when I go in, I do some high schools as well as primary schools, and even the high school kids that aren't aware where you know the meat comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, I show them a picture of our calves and talk about the passports and then you know photos and going through the market and you know they're saying oh that's really sad that that wee calf's gone for meat and you just think how do you not know that though mm. they just haven't made that connection there's children down south in inner cities that will not they think pot noodle is a vegetable <laughs> you know because they're not getting trained in the schools yeah. you know my old auntie's 86 and was a door teacher all her days. And she was down not that long ago because, you know, you all revert back to your youth. So now that her husband's away and her kids are all up and the grandkids are all up, she comes back to the home farm and sleeps in her old bedroom from when oh. she was a girl and makes nice. And um, she's a great spud aunt, Mina. But one of the last days she was down, she was quite upset about the food bank in Perth and how she helps and how many people need it. But the thing that upset her the most was I could feed them for a week and what they have but they don't know how to cook. Yeah. They don't know how to use the basic ingredients yeah. and that we make. You know, n- nobody anymore makes a pot of soup. No. You know, 
boil a bit of brisket. Brisket's the cheapest beef to buy. Buy a bit of brisket and boil it. Make a big pot of soup, slice up your brisket and make some roast beef gravy granules and you've got a big pot of roast beef. Uh, you've got a big roast beef dinner and you've got a pot of beef broth that'll do you for two or three days. You know, and these were all things that my granny taught because, yeah. you know, when we were wee... Mum was always out because women in agriculture is, uh, I'm sorry to say it, but it's not a new movement. No. It's not a new movement. There was always women in agriculture. Yeah. My mum always went out and helped my dad, so we would quite often be punted down to my grands. And I have vivid memories of standing in a chair as we took this height, learning how to make apple pie and how to make soup and how to make all these things. But the children don't have that anymore. I think the parents at home don't have time because a lot of them are working. So Absolutely. they're not getting it at home and you're right, maybe they need to be getting it in schools. Absolutely. I, mean, I stand, I'm a working mum. Mm-hmm. I work full time, long hours. I stand on a Sunday. A Sunday is my day. I, I shop on a Saturday morning and on a Sunday I cook for the week ahead. So that on Monday night when we come in late, chicken curry comes out of the fridge and by the time I've fed my calves, the curry's hit up in the oven and the rice is boiled on top of the egg and it's good to go. Yeah. Tuesday night when we're all late again because Dad's at sailing open and I'm in here at a big cafe with spaghetti bolognese because it's the instant quick tea mm-hmm. but it was all made on Sunday and just the pasta to boil. Yeah. You know, there's chilli con carne in the fridge which might we eat a lot of mince and you get that. <laughs> mince is very good and very reasonably pl- I can't advocate mince enough. Uh, so we eat a lot of mince. Uh, so it's chilli con carne tonight because I know it was spaghetti bolognese last night but it's yeah. chilli tonight. Yeah. And then tomorrow night who knows, sausage casserole. But because uh, it's not made, I've made three for some reason this week and not enough, but Thursday night should be okay. But but I cook on a Sunday because it's the cheapest way to feed my family of four is to, is to make it all from scratch. Yeah. You know, and, and who knew that you can make mashed potatoes on a Sunday and portion them up and put them in the freezer and lift them out and microwave them? Oh, it's a revolution. You know, it's simple things, but people don't get it because yeah. these kids have never been taught. No, that's right. Sad. And if they were taught, they might come and buy our produce. Yeah. You know, buy more milk and make your custard. Stop buying it out of carton. Uh, so what do you think the future will be for Scotland's red meat industry then? I still firmly believe in it. I don't think the vegan movement is as huge as everybody thinks. I just think they have a huge voice. There's a difference yeah. between being big and being very good at putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. I still believe we produce some of the best product in the world. Grass-fed, you know best of breeding Aberdeen Angus. Everybody aspires to an Aberdeen Angus steak. Well, that's us. Yeah. I don't know if we sell ourselves well enough. I don't know how we do. I don't know if it's about adverts and telesales and things. I, I firmly believe it's more about grassroots, about people speaking... Education in the schools. Education in the schools. Yeah. Education in the community. Yeah. You know, go out to the Women's Institute or whatever groups are on and speak to these people because without speaking to them, they presume that we're all like Warsaw Gummidge. <laughs> You know, either that or big fat. There's only two kinds of farmers in people's heads. It's the Wurzel Gummidge or it's the man with the, the, the four and a half tat and all the rest of it and the posh salts and does a bit of hunting and shooting and fishing and owns 5,000 acres. Well, that's not the farming man I know. Yeah, so it's about getting those faces out there, isn't it? It's about getting people not educated just to understand us, making us more accessible. So you're quite positive about the future of the industry? Then, yeah, I, thought, I think we're going through a terrible time I hate to say the B word, well not say the full B no, word, no. but I just think that the uncertainty of it is killing us more than what it would. I am sick of it and I think it's time. And ironically, we only produce, what, 60% sufficient in beef. I know we're oversubscribed in lamb, but well, we might have to look radically at, you know, let's lamb half the years in the middle of the year and just try and spread the, 
the lamite rather than all coming together at once. Mm. Let's, you know, I mean, if we're only going to be able to eat our own stuff, yeah. that's not going to happen. The government yeah. won't let that happen. Yeah. But it would be lovely for the agricultural industry if we could right. eat our own. You know, there is a reason a strawberry tastes like a turnip in December. <laughs> it's because we're meant to eat turnip in December. Yeah. You know... Go back to people have lost that. Yeah, they go on about global local. warming and yeah. farm, farming has fueled it. No, we haven't. It is you and your consumption. You all want strawberries all year round, so they get flown in thousands of miles. When really, what you should be eating is preserved fruit in the winter. Yeah, I was watching a program from the other side, but I was watching a program the other night. I think was it last night, two nights ago, about um, apples. There was something like four thousand went out in one day. It was yeah. what comes in at the UK, yeah. but there was twenty thousand come in. Yeah, because the British consumer likes a certain type of apple, and mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe. Well, why we don't were, we grow that certain type of apple? Well, they were shipping them in from New Zealand, and just that baffles me. Mm, oh, but these but, pink ladies, yeah, they are very nice. But I still buy a British apple. Yeah, I do if I can. I New Zealand plastic though, which is infuriates me that you can't yeah. get a loose British apple. But I do buy a British apple, and I buy, um, I shop in a, a not such a big branded supermarket because everything in the shelves, meat-wise, is Scottish. Yeah. I know that I don't have to read the label with my glasses on, yes. which is a pain, just to check that it is Scottish. When I know I can just pick it up an Aldi and it will be Scottish chicken, it will be Scottish lamb. Yeah. Although I do like the butchers. We had um, the oldest boy was promised a birthday party this summer. So he is one of 14 boys in the one class, all eight years of age. Mm. I was twitching, but I promised they could come. <laughs> so we had 14 eight-year-old boys running around the yard. Gosh. Um, gosh. And... Um, <laughs> I just did what was simple and easy, so I just went and bought some chicken burgers Mm -hmm. and I went to the butcher and bought some nice beef burgers and I gave them all the choice. I said, it's beef or chicken burgers, make up your mind. And 11 out of the 13 boys out of the town all took beef burger Mm -hmm. and then all sat going, "Mm -hmm, oh, Mrs. Beaton, mm -hmm." (laughs) and I'm like, tell all your mummies it's out the butcher. Yeah. Because that trade's dying, isn't it? Butchers. Well, yeah, there's some, I mean, there's some very good butcher shops out yeah. there that aren't dying because they've moved with the times and made things easy. You know, the one I go to is Collins at Muirhead. He buys his cattle here. But I always went there even before I started work here because he's an excellent butcher and he has done it well, you know. Um, it just happens to be the one that's closest to me, so it's the one I go to. There's several good yeah. butchers coming by here. Yeah. But... He's made it easy for the public. I mean, you go in to buy, I go in maybe once every two or three weeks and just freeze it. Yeah. But, you know, there's obviously ladies going there every week because they know them all by their first name yeah. and they're in buying and they've got it all beautifully presented. You know, you can go in and buy your two beef wellingtons for Saturday night, all done, all yeah. beautifully. You just put it in the oven and brush it away. So the butchers have made it easy for the public to buy. Almost made posh ready meals for them. They, they have made yeah. posh ready yeah. meals, but with yeah. good, with yeah. our produce. Because if you go and buy a ready meal in the supermarket, you can almost guarantee a lot of these ping meals will all be made before them beef yeah just says from the eu and then you think well where, where well where in the eu it could be yeah. anywhere yeah exactly so what do you think are the main challenges facing farmers at the moment then i think it is the changing eating habits of the nation and i think that is back to what we've been speaking about for a long time about the education of children and about the, the modern family where everybody works and nobody has time to converse to that what's the main opportunities for us then do you think as farmers i don't know if farmers as such can hone in on it but we have to rely on our agencies to hone in and teaching these people how to cook yeah. that is the only way to go back to the basics yeah. and the only way that we'll get them to use our which are the basics the raw products is by teaching them how to use them and um, so i hear you did the rural leadership program i did and i loved it yeah. it was life-changing for me was it i've heard that from a few people oh what was it about it that was so inspiring for you the people um, you met or the people i met were great they were super but it was my own self-belief that improved 
you know, up until the rule of leadership, I'd always been headstrong and I'd always been, you know, pushed on and been aggressive in sales. Mm-hmm. I think they would tell you I was very aggressive in sales. I remember <laughs> after my first child, the bosses took me in from a review and they said to me, some of the boys think you're a bit aggressive in your sales. And I'm like, well, what do you think? And I said, well, what I think is if they can't play with the big girls, they'll never play with the big boys. <laughs> But, but you know, I was I was aggressive in my sales because they were trying to steal my customers, my own company. They were trying to steal yeah, my customers, yeah. and I was off for sixteen weeks with the first one. Is that all you take off? Yeah, I was with the first one, and they all tried to steal my customers. So with the second one, I took six weeks, okay. and I lined up the worst offenders and told them, "If you go into my customers while I'm off for six weeks, I will cut out your tongue and make you eat it." <laughs> I'm sure that did the trick. Well, I taught them, <laughs> but. <laughs> but but that didn't take away from I didn't have firm belief in myself as a leader, mm-hmm. as being good in business. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have that confidence. And, and I remember clearly going to the meeting before I put in my, well, I put in my application, I went to this open evening about it. And the chap who was doing it at the time, I remember him clearly saying that night at the meeting, don't come to this unless you're prepared that I will take you to bits and put you back together again. And I'm home that night after, I'm going to my husband, and just watch me, I'm blinking <laughs> sure he's taken me to bits and put me back together, we'll see what he's made of. Well, the man did. <laughs> Does he? The man absolutely took me to bits mm-hmm. and put me back together. And I remember clearly we were in Fennec doing a two-day course, and it was a lot of role-play and, you know... This, these actors and, and of course this was a, one thing was about progression and about handing over the farm and this mm-hmm. this one was in your own and they're all going oh, you'll, we'll never break him because that's his job and I'm going I'll break him I'll break him and, and I couldn't but afterwards they said to me said, you know you, if that hadn't been an actor told not to break you would have broken him there right. but at the end of the two day thing he was going round and going you know I'd like to shake the hand of the person like Paul Hollywood does the person that I think in this whole group over this last two days has shown true leadership skills have been the best at asking pertinent questions because they've listened well and I'm, and I'm thinking right okay it'll be I know no, it'll definitely be her no it could be him and the whole time I'm thinking oh definitely the one to the left of me I think she's very clever it'll be her and it was my hand he shook mm-hmm. and I was in tears and he said to me he said you never saw it coming did you I said no never never you didn't, you didn't he said you yourself. don't see the qualities that other people see in you and, and I think to the degree I've been institutionalised as well I'd worked far too long in the one company which is, you know, seen as been a great thing, but I think it actually institutionalised me. Okay. I, I came to believe that I was just, you know, it's just Primrose. Don't teach her that, she'll get married and leave. Then two years later, just, you know, give it to Primrose because nobody's going to marry that. And, 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 you know, and so it went on and and I'd got institutionalised into a rut and, and the rural leadership just completely opened my eyes to life outside of that company mm-hmm. and life outside of auctioneering. And... And suddenly these people that I took as being really great people within an ag- agricultural industry were saying to me, but we take you just as seriously. And it was a real light. And I graduated on the Monday from my rural leadership course and I handed in my notice at UA on the Friday morning. So that was the incentive? And I remember clearly halfway through the course because I'd been having a terrible time at work just because I was I was hitting a glass ceiling and I was frustrated and, and I could see changes happening and nobody was telling me what the changes were but I was well aware I wasn't in them and it was very frustrating. And I remember clearly sitting down with the, the, the director at the time and I'm saying, you know, how's your course doing? Do you feel it's you know, helping you? And he said, oh, totally. I said, the biggest thing it's taught me is I can't control how other people see me and how it goes out with me. I can only control my inner circle and what I do. I can control what I do and I can control what I choose to do. And he looked at me and went, we didn't send you in this course for you to leave. I said, well, 
I can't control what I, what you think and what you do. I can only control my end of it. And he was just like, hmm. And then, of course, that was halfway through the course, and at the end of it, I did leave. Yeah. So did you know where you were going? Had you lined this job up before you left, or did you just think... No, it just all happened to come together at the yeah. right time. Um, yeah. All the changes at work were coming to fruition. These my A group of my peers had all became the next layer of owners, stroke, bosses. Okay. And these men that I rated as peers and peers alone were suddenly in charge of me. And I was like, OK. And at that same time, Pete Lanark had approached me to come and work here. Mm-hmm. And I kind of poo-pooed them, to be honest with you. And then it all changed because the rule leadership changed me. And then in the final few days, I was actually taken in at my job and told that there was another man to step in in front of me and sell store cattle. And I still wasn't to sell store cattle. Because you know how it goes, there's always a man slightly better than you. And I just decided enough was enough. And I think to a degree they thought her husband works here. She has two young boys. She's no room at the moment in her life for upheaval and change. She will take whatever's dished. But in this life, you have to forge your own path and you have to have the courage of your convictions to do what you believe is best for yourself. So what drives you personally? Why do you do what you do? Um, Probably coming from a small farm um, with a father who taught you to have both self-belief and to be ambitious. It's not just... You know, when I came here, I got the impression that to say you're ambitious is a dirty word. Right. But it's not a dirty word in our family. You should Mm -hmm. be ambitious to always push on and do better and... Why wouldn't you want to succeed in this life? That's, I thought, what we all wanted. It's certainly what I would encourage my boys. The, the teachers at school would tell you I'm one of those mummies, you know. You know, how did you do today? I came second, mummy. Mm, second is just first last. It's just, you know, it's not about the taking part. It's purely about the winning boys. <laughs> but, um, but there's too much of that these days. They want to pat them on the head and tell them all that they're very clever and they've all done very, very well. Well, that doesn't prepare them for working life. No, that's right. Working life is not like that. So I've always been ambitious. I've always wanted to improve. I've always wanted to get on. You know, if I hadn't pushed on and done well, we wouldn't be buying the farm next door this summer. We wouldn't be in there. And it's all... Every generation is taught to put... You know, I was always taught we're always here. Every generation is here to look after their land and to improve it. We are merely custodians here to hand on better to the next generation. And that's in your life as well, to try and improve your family circumstances. What has been the biggest high point in your career? To walk back into Lanark Market as the head cattle auctioneer. As a wee girl, I came here and we sold our calves here mm-hmm. and we bought motherless lambs because that's how you teach kids about death and farming. You buy <laughs> ten motherless lambs and about three survive. Um, so we came here a lot as a wee girl and then we moved to Stirling because cause the float driver changed and we went to Stirling and nobody came from here and asked why. But Lanark Market was always, you know, as a wee girl being in North Lanarkshire, Lanark Market. Um so to go and work in Stirling all those years, to come back into Lanark Market as the head auctioneer, I just wish my dad had seen it. Because yeah. he would never have believed it. I remember the first time I got a company car. What would they give me thing like you a car for? Oh, why would they want you in the farm? But, you know, that's the achievement for me. To, to I, I would love to push on and become a director of the company just because it's another string to your bro, another credit yeah. to you. Why shouldn't you be? And to be the first female director in an auction company. I think we actually did. I think I'm lying about that because I actually think Lanark, who are very progressive, I think they had up in the wall there, there's lady, somebody or other who would be a director here. In fact, she might have been a chairman, actually. I can't read her name though from here, but she's definitely a chairman of the of the market. So, so and Lanark have been great. They've been very... Don't treat you any different. That's what I ask for. They don't look upon you as a girl. They just look upon you as an employee. And finally, what is success for you and how do you measure it? 
success for me. Getting home at the end of the day and knowing that everybody's happy, that you've not left anybody behind, that they're all delighted with a trade, that they all think you've tried your best. Because mm -hmm. the trade is difficult just now. Yeah. But as long as the men know that you're trying your best for them and you have done your best, sorry, um, then that is probably a measure of a good day for me. If I know that I've done my very best, that everybody I've left behind is happy, then I think that's probably okay for me. Yeah. Okay, so thank you, Primrose, for taking the time to speak to us today. It's, you've offered us a real insight into your working life as an auctioneer. It's been brilliant. The Farm Advisory Service run 11 women in agriculture groups across Scotland, to which all women who are involved with agriculture are welcome. You can find out more about FAS and the work we are doing with women in agriculture on our website, www.fas.scot, or, or if you need advice, call the helpline on 0300 323 0161.